All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, Aneers? What the fuck, comedians? There it is again. That's twice with that one. They keep coming in. I can only do four or five or get ridiculous. I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Yesterday was my birthday. I cannot thank you enough for all your wonderful emails and Twitter birthday well wishes. I appreciate it. Even Patton Oswalt tweeting happy 70th birthday. It's fine. I can take it. I'm a big boy. I said, thanks, pal. Go fuck yourself. That's nice, right? Look, I don't do a big thing for my birthday over at the office today. We were writing the, uh, the show. They had two cakes. And it wasn't a cheat day. I don't want to be a, a baby about it. So I ate two pieces of cake and then went into some sort of weird coma nap for an hour. It was ridiculous. And I woke up. I didn't know where I was. I hope I'm not getting diabetes. Is that, is that what I should be thinking about on my 49th birthday? Might I get diabetes? Does one have to be heavy to get diabetes? I am sort of genetically predisposed on some level and a couple of generations back to some diabetes. This is not what I want to be talking about. The day after my birthday, there's a lot on my mind. My mother sent me two shirts, one of which was hideous. The two-shirt thing has been going on my entire life. I can always count on my mother every year on my birthday to send me two shirts, one of which maybe I'll like. And then she'll send a gift card for Bloomingdale's or Macy's to compensate for the, 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 the shirts. I called her up. I said, I got the shirt. She goes, did you like them? I said, I liked one of them. She goes, yeah. Which one? The long sleeve? I said, yeah. She goes, I thought so. And I go, what about that other one? I don't know. I thought, I don't know. I, you know, I, so you sent me something you knew I wouldn't like. I, you know, I don't know. But you got the gift card, so you go get what you want. I think there's a charade that goes on between my, me and my mother every year around my birthday where she buys me shirts that she wishes I would wear, uh, I think. And then sometimes when I go visit her in Florida, her boyfriend will offer to give me shirts. So she wants me to dress up like her boyfriend, and that's loaded, folks. It's loaded. But uh, then we talked about, I said, I've been busy. I've been writing my, uh, my sitcom. And she said, this was beautiful. My parents are spectacular. She goes, so is this, are you the main guy in the show? I'm like, yeah, it's a show about me. It's a tentatively called Marin at this point. So you're like the main one. It's about you. And I go, yeah, it's my show. She goes, well, that's good. She go, she says, you mean like Louis show? Like he's, it's about Louis. Yes, it's me. It's about me. I'm the main guy in the show. Oh, I'm very proud of you, Mark. You don't have to wear that shirt, the one you don't like. Go to Macy's, get something nice. But again, thank you for the well wishes. Today on the show, Lauren Bouchard, the creator of uh, Bob's Burgers, a co-creator of Home Movies. I, as some of you know who listen to the show, I'm not really your, uh, I'm not an animation guy. I, I condescend on animation because there's part of me that thinks like we're grownups. Do, do we really need to watch cartoons? And people say, you know, that's fucking ridiculous. Uh, cartoons are great. So I watched a bunch of Bob's Burgers and I watched a bunch of home movies. I enjoyed them. I was never a Simpsons guy. I just, I didn't, I have nothing against the Simpsons. I think it's a brilliant show. I just don't watch cartoons. I mean, I'm going to date myself, but I remember when Wizards came out and Ralph Bakshi, Bakshi was a big deal. We all went to see Wizards and I liked Wizards. I like reading comics. I've just never been a guy to lock into watching cartoons. For some reason, I, 
Not that I think it's beneath me. I just, I need visceral things. I need real things. I need raw things. I need human things. But then I watched Bob Berger's. I found it very moving and very funny. And Lauren Bouchard is a, is a tremendous guy. We had a great conversation. A bit of business I'd like to get, uh, get through here. The shelves. I Again, I want to thank you all for volunteering to do my shelves. Uh, I think I explained to you what happened. Uh, right before I made my choice, I got a, a sort of urgent email from a guy named Patrick. said, I'm going to be in town for a week. I'll do your shelves. I'm a carpenter. Here's my website. So I went to his website and he came over and I talked about this before, but then he listened to it and he got, he, he, he didn't, he was upset that I suggested that he didn't take measurements. Folks, he took measurements. He made me a beautiful piece of furniture. Love it. And I want to shoot some business his way if I could. He said, you know, when, when I get my website, I'm going to redo my website. And I said, all right, I'll shoot some business your way. I'll get some people to look at your website. And I'm sure now you'll go crash the website. But the website, Patrick's website is Pat Bob McGee, M-C-G-E-E, all one word, patbobmcgee.com. He made these shelves, and I put my turntable on. I put my stereo on. Hey, you guys, anyone know what kind of setup I need for a turntable? Turns out I have all this old equipment that I thought it would be great with my turntable to play my records on my old equipment, and turns out my old equipment was always shit. So I wouldn't mind getting some old equipment if it wasn't shit. I need to get a, a, a new stereo. Maybe I should just buy a new one. I don't know. If any of you have like this passion about what one plays vinyl through, and I'm not even trying to be some sort of hipster douchebag with the vinyl. I just happen to have about 300 records. Also, not all of them I'm proud of. All right? I, I will say that. There's a couple of records that I've had since high school. Not sure why I have them still, but I do. I'll be in Michigan, Ferndale, Michigan, outside Detroit, Tomorrow night, September 29th, for two shows at the Magic Bag Theater. But look, I don't consider myself an intellectual. I do my best, okay? I do what I can. I know what I know. I don't pretend to know things I don't know. I draw from my experience. I draw from things I've seen. Sometimes I make connections. Sometimes I don't. Intellectuals are a different breed of people. They are people that live lives of the mind there are people that do cultural criticism, analytical business, true intellectuals, those in the Ivy Towers, those in the colleges. Well, the guy who changed my life more than almost anybody when I was in high school was a guy named Gus Blaisdale. Gus owned the Living Batch bookstore in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was one of the funniest, most brilliant motherfuckers I'd ever met in my life. I used to go over to his bookstore. He took me under his wing, which means he let me talk to him. And we would talk about shit and he would make jokes that were that blew my mind, uh, his point of reference, his intelligence, his ability to cut through bullshit and find the truth in things. This guy was just a wizard. He was a teacher at the University of New Mexico. He owned the bookstore. He was sort of a jack of all trades, but he was also a critic, a cultural critic, a writer. And it's interesting because I blurbed a book that came out from the University of New Mexico Press, UNMPress.com, Gus Blaisdell collected and I blurbed it on the back and I said quote I met Gus when I was in high school whether he knew it or not he's one of the most important influences in my life the combination of cutting wit and daunting intelligence he brought to every conversation was mind-blowing he showed me that humor had the power to cut through all layers of bullshit Blaisdell was truth unquote now what I'm going to tell you now is that he didn't share a lot of his writing with me but he was always writing he wrote about painting he wrote about photography he wrote about film he wrote poetry. He wrote some fiction. But anytime he would share something that he wrote with me, 
especially at the time when I was younger, I would open that, I would read it, and within a paragraph, I'd be like, what, what is happening? Have you ever had that where you read a book and you're like, oh my God, how can I be three sentences into this thing and not know what the fuck is going on? So now I'm older and I'm getting into his writing. I'm trying to read it because there's a depth to it that blows my mind. He writes a lot about Louis Baltz's photographs. He writes about Joel Whitkin's photographs. He writes about films. He wrote about Paris, Texas. He wrote a piece about Full Metal Jacket, which I just watched the other night. And I'm going through Gus's book and I'm thinking like, maybe I could wrap my brain around the way Gus wrapped his brain around movies now. Maybe I can be that deep. Maybe I'm an intellectual. Can I still hang on to the hope? So this is a riff. Yeah, this is the difference between me and a real intellectual, right? He's talking about the opening scene in Full Metal Jacket where, you know, uh, Joker, Matthew Modine's character, right at the beginning does that bit, the John, the John Wayne bit. Is that you, John Wayne? Is this me? And then, uh, and then the drill sergeant, drill instructor Hartman, Lee Ermey, punches him in the stomach. So this is where Gus Blaisdell, in his book, in his essay, Mr. Death Blue, Mr. Death's Blue-Eyed Boy, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, he departs from this line. And a few paragraphs in, this is a paragraph. This, this is a paragraph from his book. And this is the difference between me and, and a real intellectual. Quote, This line done in Duke's voice, as rendered by Joker, has become almost as haunting for me as who's there? The interrogative that opens Hamlet, another drama full of ghosts, the dead, and retribution. And Francisco answers Bernardo's challenge critically. Nay, answer me. Stand and unfold yourself. Did the absence of John Wayne and all he stood for in America haunt American soldiers in Vietnam as the ghost of King Hamlet haunted Denmark? I think so. But what immediately interests me here, as critical as Francisco's reciprocal challenge to Bernardo's interrogation, is why Joker does it. Why at this moment? What does he hope to gain by impersonating John Wayne and, while remaining in voice, subsequently questioning himself and disrupting Hartman? Unquote. Now, that is some fucking deep shit. Do you wish you could reference Shakespeare so efficiently? I can't reference anything. I barely know what Hamlet's about. And he puts it into context, updates it, integrates it into the language of analysis. Shit is deep. If you're interested in the book, Gus Blaisdell, Gus Blaisdell, B-L-A-I-S-D-E-L-L, collected from the UNMPress.com, University of New Mexico. A very important guy in my life, a mentor. Again, I'm not going to tell you I understand everything in the book, but the dude was genius. All right? I don't even know what interrogative means. I got to go look that up. I probably should. I'm no good with the with the words. I use the words I know really well. I guess that's the blues. That's the thing. If you just know a couple licks and you fucking get behind them, they resonate. If you got 10 words that you really use well, Fucking get behind him. It's all you need. Ten words. Lauren Bouchard. Yeah. Do you pronounce it like French? I don't put any yeah, like you don't put any, it. Yeah, like you just Bouchard. Did. Yeah, you don't have to. But you must yeah. get that all the time. Lean into it. Uh, uh, no, no, not really. Come on, in Canada. 
In Canada, it's like Smith. No one gets you know. Bouchard, <laughs> it, everything's Bouchard. Yeah. Is that true? Oh yeah, it's very common. Is that is that where your uh, you, your family's from? My dad's people are originally from there. He came from Nashville, New Hampshire, which was basically uh, part of French Canada when he was you know in the forties or whatever. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Nashville, New Hampshire, other parts of Maine, they spoke French. Really? Yeah. That, it, was that like trapper culture up there? It what? was no, it was the mills. It was the mill towns. Oh. All these French Canadian uh depressive alcoholics came down. Sure. The the guys who who, you know, didn't want to be trappers, I guess, uh came down to work in like the shoe factories. Right. Maine. I think that's just me generalizing. Like everyone can't be a trapper. I mean, there's a lot of French Canadians. I just whenever someone mentions that area yes. and French, I'm like, Oh, they're out there with pelts. They gotta be trapping. Yeah, yeah. What else is there to do? <laughs> Just trap and look at snow. Yeah, but it's not true. I guess that's that's right. I remember those uh, those mill towns yeah. in New Hampshire. They yeah. were all uh, in, and many of them have obviously they're closed, but some of them have been sort of you know made into apartments and yeah fun things. The lucky ones are now fun things. Yeah, you get your like uh, your like a museum. Or I got an appar- I have an apartment where my grandfather worked himself to death. Yes, exactly. it's great. Yes. You know that one, there's that one in Boston, it's not, you know the, did you live in Boston? Yeah. That church that they made into condos downtown, like years ago? Oh, that rings a I bell. Can't, I can't yeah. remember where it is, maybe on Exeter Street or yeah, something, yeah. but it was just, this. that's got to be, why would you want to live there? Or hospitals. Yeah, I Those, know. I mean, they're nice, but it's a little weird, right? Right, you have a big window, which is good, Yeah. but somebody died in your room. Oh, many people. Yeah, man. God knows what's happened. Yeah. People have cried and died, last rites have been given. Yeah. Where's that episode of something? <laughs> they've made it. You have the capacity to do that. You work with cartoons. Yeah. You can make them do whatever you want. We have total control. Is that what you're saying? It is what I'm saying. Yeah. But let's uh, let's go back because, uh, you know, I, I watch a lot of Bob's Burgers. Oh, good. I have the first season uh-huh. and I know everybody's in it. Yeah. But then, like, I didn't realize, like, home movies, I, I know everybody. Yeah. I knew everybody and Dr. Katz. I, have you ever met me? Yeah. Okay, so now what? How'd that go? It was great. Uh, what yeah, was that? It was well. <clears throat> the way I remember the '90s and you was uh, <laughs> that you were the host of the thing that Short Dr. Attention. Katz premiered on Short Attention Span Theater. Yeah, I don't know if I had the opportunity to meet you at that time, but I just remember you from then because you were the guy who first put the things you introduced the shorts. So I saw, you know, really was that when it came out when I was host of that show? Mm-hmm. No kidding. Yeah. Because I remember doing Dr. Katz. Obviously, I was on a couple episodes, yeah. but I... Oh, that's interesting. Was It wasn't the box set. It was actually the premiere of the series. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, it wasn't even the premiere of the series. It was the shorts that the series... You know, the, became the, yeah. Comedy Central ordered seven one-minute shorts. This is right when I started working for my boss, Tom Snyder, at the time, and Jonathan Katz, and he had kind of so this is like ninety-two. This ninety-three. Oh my god! Yeah. I had no idea that I was part of it. Yeah. And I helped. You helped. <laughs> and then you were you were one of our first guests in the first season. We had, I think, six. They ordered six episodes. And I think if you weren't in those first six, you were in the first 12. And I remember you came up from New York and, and uh, you know. I we remember were, sitting in the studio. Yeah. And, we, and I, my job was to, at the time, was to um, watch, n- know your act. You were in there. Yeah. I remember. I was a kid. I had more hair. Right. Yeah. You were like, you were the guy like the Snyder wasn't there. It was me and Jonathan. And uh, the guy, you were the guy? I pressed record. You were the guy. And then I stayed up late afterwards and cut it. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I do remember you now. That was my But job. were you, like, I'm seeing you in the room. Were you in a booth, probably? For some reason, I feel like- You, you were, were in the booth. I was in the booth, yeah. and you were in the you room. You know how this works. Yeah. With Jonathan. Yeah. Okay. 
Oh, yeah, that's right. Holy shit, it's all coming together. The uh, No, it seems to be getting around again because that internet joke. Do you like dogs? Like the irony uh, of the fact that I basically in that joke was saying, the internet's like CB radios. They didn't last very long. Yes. I've been on the internet. It's just a, you know, a couple of guys like, do you like dogs? Yes, I do like dogs. You know. That's going around? Well, yeah, it was going around. They're That's like, uh, how do you feel about that now? Yeah. yeah, guy who just made his uh, mid-career success on the <laughs> internet that you condescended. <laughs> I must have been the only idiot at that time that really saw no future in it. I didn't. You didn't? I didn't. Uh, so before I worked on Dr. Katz, I was installing computer cable uh, at like various companies around the Boston area, like Digital Corporation. And I remember pulling cable and you know, networking all these computers. And I yeah. said to the, my boss at the time, I said, I don't get it. What is it for? And he said, so that people can talk to each other. And I said, what are they talking about? And he said, I don't know. I guess they're talking about the network. Yeah. The network. Yeah, the network. Is it up? Yeah, is it yeah. running? And I said, well, that's never going to last. How long is that conversation yeah. going? Seems to be working. Okay, I guess we'll meet you in the hall. That, that was the whole thing. Yeah. I just never saw the possibilities of Same. it. So when you, how did you get to involved with animation? I mean, we're, how did that all happen? I mean, you grew up where? New Hampshire? No, I was in Boston, mostly. I was born in New York and raised in the Boston area. What, what part? What part of what? Boston. Oh, I lived in Medford, and I went to school in Cambridge. Medford? Yeah. Yeah. Medford. And where did you go to school in Cambridge? Where? Yeah. I went to this grade school called Shady Hill, where my dad was an art teacher for 35 years. Your dad was an art teacher? Yeah. That's and and this, this connects to your uh, question. So at this school, it's a great uh, private school, so yeah. I'm lucky to go because my dad was a teacher there. And uh, there's a science teacher that I have in, I believe, uh, 5th, 6th, and 7th grade. Yeah. He leaves, starts a software company. Educational software. Mm -hmm. As part of that, he's doing a little bit of animation. I bump into him in 1993. I'm 23. I've completely lost my way. I didn't go to college. I'm bartending. I'm worried that I have made a huge mistake. I mean, with I, everything. With everything. I was really aware <laughs> of the possibility that I had screwed up, that I should have gone to college. I should have finished high school. I just had a little lost youth period, and I was at the, at the nervous end of that. Yeah. And I bump into that guy, Tom Snyder, who had been my science teacher. And he said, I just started doing this animation thing on the side. I'm sure nothing will come of it. Right. But we got these shorts on Comedy Central. Do you still draw? And I lied. And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, I don't even know if I have a job. I don't know what it would pay, but come by the office. So I knew, I knew at that second that I was getting lucky. Right. I knew that when I went to talk to him and I, I understood immediately that this was the big chance, the sort of like winning the lottery type moment and never ever hesitated. From that moment on, I threw myself into it as if I had been given a, a like a divine message, you are going to be in animation. <laughs> and I did. I started, I remember, I had this memory too of like, uh, I was, was uh, I never wore my seatbelt back then. And yeah. I remember saying, you know, I'm going to wear my seatbelt. I want to live. That, well, that's a, uh, that's sort of a law thing. Yeah, at the yeah, time, yeah. I, they didn't make a big deal of it at the time. And also, it's a 20s thing. I think when you're in your 20s, you right. sort of start realizing those sorts of things. But it also happened to be that I just, uh, you know, I connected. So you were getting a lot of messages from God. You know, wear the seatbelt. Here's a guy. This is it. This yeah. is your doorway, Animation. my son. Yeah. <laughs> you will now use squiggle lines. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But so how did the... How, so you're, I'm fascinated with the fact that your father was an art teacher because that means... There's very little room to judge harshly uh, a child's choices. 
right? How so? Well, I mean, like, if he's an art teacher, you know, he appreciates art. He obviously appreciates kids learning about things and expressing themselves. I don't see that as the kind of uh, father that would say, uh, don't ever do art. You know, go, you know, go to a school and learn a, a trade. Uh, no, that was never, those words were never spoken. <laughs> uh, he was an art teacher. He is and was, uh, through the whole thing, an artist, a real artist, like bohemian, uh, shaggy haired, you know, thinks all day and makes art. Still. Still. Oh, yeah. More than ever now because he's retired. Well, that's, it's beautiful. He's, it's, a, it's, it's, I love hearing that. Was there a point, though? Like, were you aware of your the evolution? So, how old are you? You're, you're a little younger than me. Yeah, forty two. So he was an art teacher for thirty five years. Yeah. So you didn't know him at the point where he was like, you know, I'm just gonna fucking do this. He, I knew him as uh, I, my parents were always uh, doing their thing. My mother was a writer. Uh, she died when I was a teenager. But uh, my father and my mother, they I all I ever knew was, was for a, like a model of a of a parent and an adult was was an artist. I love that. Yeah, you're you're lucky. Yeah. So how'd you end up getting uh, fucked up? My mother died. And that was that. Yeah, yeah. We 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 were. He, my dad was heroic and uh, great uh, in how he handled it. You know, raising my me and my sister. I was fourteen. What happened? She got cancer. Mm. It was pretty fast. Uh, this is in you know 84 and i think if she had the same uh diagnosis now i think she would have been fine i feel like people survive uh colon and liver cancer yeah. now but then you, you died right if, you got, if it got into your liver there's nothing over. they could do yeah yeah how old were you i was 14 oh that's, that's horrible yeah i was 13 when she was sick and my sister was 10 and and we're, you know, she was 11 when she died and it was bad it was really bad and, and what was bad about it was the next few years the the reverberations it takes a long time to um to actually uh absorb that and so for some reason you know we we could sort of be okay for a year and then i you know start slipping later right and i started having this very distinct um feeling that that homework was stupid right. and i know a lot of people have that feeling but i acted on it and i right. think that's one of those things that like it's a sort of a a dividing line you know because of who who my dad was and what how he was dealing with it he just like yeah don't do your homework if you don't do your homework right and so which is again fine i think i actually like the choices he made but he let me not do my homework and so i started you know failing in school and you know at one at a certain point i just said i also don't feel like going to school and he said yeah, do what you want to do so you do you like in retrospect think that uh that the grief was paralyzing like it just came later, yeah, and and you, you sort of um, you, you repressed it, and you just got existentially depressed. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was that, and and it wasn't even like I was aware of being depressed. I was actually full of excitement. I was really into girls, and yeah. uh, I had all this sort of sense of potential of my own romantic ideas about what my life would be like. I thought maybe I'd you know get a bass and drive to New Orleans and be in a band. Like I had a lot of ideas, but it was ungrounded. You wouldn't have met Tom Snyder if no. you had exactly. been in a bar in New Orleans. No, nope. exactly. That I would have been a whole different story. Yeah. You ever think about that story? All the time. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> Just you're still sort of playing gigs around, you know, Katrina benefits. Yeah. 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 yeah watching dishes somewhere. Yeah. It's a good job. Watching Treme saying like, this doesn't seem like I'm what I'm living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get like, um, 
Like I, I don't know what it's like to lose a parent, but I, I can imagine that you know that that sort of like the the void, the absence of of somebody who was there all the time, and then just it's interesting to me that three years down the line that everything just it, it wasn't even a darkness; it was just sort of like you, you, this is it, yeah, right? Like this is life, yeah. I'm gonna do this. You don't know the wheels are coming off. And so, yeah, you think you're in the middle of making choices, but you're, you know, you're making bad choices. And, and, you know, my sister did the opposite or not the opposite. That's not true. She also kind of stopped doing her schoolwork. It's, yeah. I guess that's just, yeah, it's just hard to do because mm. you sort of, what's the point? It's hard to buy in. I think when you get, when you're in that pr- proximity to, uh, to, to, to loss, I mean, at that age, I mean, well, how, how else are you supposed to process that? Right. Because you don't want to know that people die, especially right. your parents. Especially you know? your parents. And yeah, so she kind of stayed inside. I remember she got on a, a subscription service to Harlequin um, romance novels, yeah. and she was getting six of them a week. And that that's what she was doing for a long time. Just sitting in her room in reading her room Harlequin reading. romances? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I, I, I completely understand that. I made the mistake of... Uh, of tweeting something last night that you know I should have thought through. <laughs> it wasn't even. I just said you know, uh, you know, fuck zombies, fuck vampires, <laughs> fuck werewolves. <laughs> Why don't you all fucking grow up and be afraid of real things? Oh boy, yeah. And and uh, but but that but that's the thing is that you forget is that we're all afraid of real things. Right. These you know, function as they disarm it. Yeah. You know they they manifest it in different ways. Something we can handle. Yeah. I, and okay, so okay, you you don't you drop out of high school. Yeah, you just, how does that? How do you do that? I'd always heard of people doing it. Do you just you just stop going? You start the way I did it, and this is what I would recommend if anybody wants to follow in this. Please, kids, path. yeah, if you're listening, up. I get a lot of uh, kids that don't know what they want to do emailing me. <laughs> so uh, Lauren Bouchard is going to help you with yeah. ruining your life and rolling the dice on meeting a Tom Snyder. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so yeah, you stop going to the classes you don't want to go to and you go to the classes that you do want to go to, which in my case was like ceramics or, and I forget what else. Painting? Uh, yeah, yeah. I did a lot of drawing classes. Yeah. And, um, and they will notice Yeah. and they don't like that. Yeah. Um, the, the headmaster, this is a small private school again. So this I, is still the school your father's teaching No, in. no. It's a private high school in Boston. I, I, I got- Which uh, one? Commonwealth School. Uh-huh. I'm embarrassed to say I got a scholarship there, which was so nice of them. It was partly as a result of my dad being a teacher and kind of, you know, these they were trying to take care of me. You know, there was a, there was a sense of like, this is a a kid who you know his mother died and he needs to go to a good school and yeah. you know, couldn't afford the tuition and and I am embarrassed that I you know kind of uh, didn't appreciate that at the time what that meant to get a scholarship. So the other school only went through middle school. Yeah, it went up to ninth. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, I go, I go to high school, I do okay for a year and then, yes, then things start kind of making less sense to me about why I should, you know, pay attention. Was there music involved? Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of music involved. I was really excited about, um, punk at the time, partly because the kids ahead of me were the great ahead of me included Evan Dando and the original members of the Lemonheads. He went went to your school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were great guys. They were just fun and they had sort of a, a lot of, um, you know, they're just they threw great parties and, yeah, yeah. and it was just a lot of uh, uh, hanging out with them felt like you were really hanging out with I've sort of them. heard stories about him now he's like, what have I heard that he's a fun guy but n- not a not a think tank <laughs> no he's really smart <laughs> I actually think that's I, I don't that's know that's a, a I think yeah I think it might be he, he here's here's how things were going for me in school when he was a senior I was a, a junior and we were hanging out a lot and and 
I, I thought doing our best to kind of blow off school. And yeah. at a certain point, I realized he was going to graduate and he was doing fine. Yeah. And I felt like, hey, you've been sneaking. Yeah. Your work. Yeah. I've been yeah. blowing it yeah. off. You're I'm cheating. in trouble. Yeah. yeah. I'm not barely gonna make it into the next grade and you're going to college. Yeah. He had he had like uh enough told time. you, man. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's the guy that, that threw you off. He he threw you under the bus. I felt that way and I regret it because you know that that's not right. You shouldn't accuse another kid of, of betraying you by doing his homework. Well, I hated those kids though. The kids that were like, you know, like, hey, rock and roll, and then they're like, I got A's, I graduated yeah. with honors. Like, how the fuck I'm putting all of my effort into fucking up my life, yeah. and you're lying. Yeah, I I have to say I think there are people who can do both. They can like party all night and then somehow turn in a paper that is like I, I well don't read. I don't think I could write a paper now. Yeah, same. I could, I could never figure it out. It was like some code I couldn't crack. I think I could have if I had yeah not decided that it was all bullshit, and so I. So you were into punk, you're into, but the, was the Lemonheads weren't a band yet, were they? Yeah, they were. They they released their first record in their in senior high school? year. Yeah, I was I was very I was proud of them and really excited. And it, and it also it sort of, I think a lot of that potent that feeling of potential sort of felt like it had a little halo around it. I was like, yeah, I'm but, friends with him, yeah, so I'm in the inner yeah, circle. I yeah. could probably make a record too. I don't play any instruments, <laughs> but I bet I could make a record. That's not important, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm living the life. <laughs> All right, so okay, so you stop going to practical classes. Yeah, so he, yeah, the, the, at a certain point in my senior year, the headmaster called me into his office mm -hmm. and he said, "I think you want me to kick you out." <laughs> and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and that was the last day I went. Really? I thought, "You know what? He's right. I've been waiting for somebody to to make a move here. I've been like blowing off class, I go, you know, uh, two classes a week or whatever I was doing. I'd sleep in every morning." And again, you know, my dad, God bless him, he was Okay, do what you do what you feel you got to do. But but you don't have any uh, sort of not necessarily regrets about that. Like you know, I know your dad's a great guy, and my parents were okay when it came to letting me do things. Yeah. But one of the few regrets I have in retrospect was that somebody didn't say, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Right. Just you know, lock in. Yeah. You know, I I have two sons now, and so obviously I do see it through a different lens. And what I imagine I might say to them if they were going through something like i went through is go to college get do your work so you can go to college and here's why i think you're gonna get incredibly late i think you're gonna <laughs> love got something you got a gift girls yeah. situation in college because i you know I, I wasn't like completely without access to girls when i didn't go to college but i became aware that all my friends went off to college and I became aware of the immense amount of partying that they were doing. Yeah. And I, that was when the beginnings of regret kicked in. They just knew a lot more people. You know, I was working. I went into work in a nightclub. Right, and they didn't have that hanging over them. Yeah. Like, I guess on some level, you're going to work in a nightclub and you're realizing, like, they got a party any time. Yeah. They're, they're in a, a structure that enables them to, to party yeah. any time. Yeah. They're free. Yeah. So I, so... And I and I think that's great. I think kids, sh you know, twenty year olds should have that. And I, I kind of miss that. And so I think that's how I'll help my kids do their homework. Is the promise of pussy? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'll say it in a nice way that doesn't. Not going to show them pictures. No, just is waiting for you. Right, no pictures, but just I'll try to paint a picture of a of a of college as something that's worth working towards. And and that's what maybe I wish my dad had done for me. But he didn't go to college either, so he didn't know either.
But there's was there ever a sense when you talked to your father about like knowing that he was an artist and that he was a, what was he a painter or what was his medium? Yeah, he's a painter. So he, he was a great painter. Yeah, he still is. Yeah. But was there ever a point in your life where you process the fact that there might be disappointment in his spirit about about how his life went? I mean, painting's a tough racket. It is. No. He didn't play I, it that I, way. He didn't play it that He didn't feel it. I think only in the last few years, because he, he reads a lot and he thinks a lot, and I think he's aware uh, of the extent to which the visual arts have been marginalized in the conversation, uh, the sort of broader cultural conversation. I think when he, in the 60s, I think he felt like being a painter was being in the heart of sure. of what art could be. And so I think he felt like he was like there at Ground Zero, making- In New York. In New York at first, and then in Boston. And I think he uh, now sees like, oh, wow, that didn't last that long. Like the, the yeah, relevance I, of, of painting- uh, in, in the bigger cultural conversation kind of got got pushed to the side well in yeah well certain even in the in the academic conversation i mean like you start to realize when you read books about uh about those that type of artwork or you know the guys that do the painting yeah. like you know they're they're in there sacrificing their life and you know sweating over these canvases yeah. and if they're good it looks finished when it's done you know like that was, he had a plan yeah. you know and he seems to be expressing himself but but not unlike any other uh, business structure you need these patrons you need yes. the critic to yes. deliver you to the rich people yes and then once the rich people enjoy spending money on your paintings then the critics return to it and say we've got a star yeah and then a museum says well if that rich guy bought that then maybe we should own one yes and they, that's a really tight tight road <laughs> it to is. travel it is he became really disillusioned with that and it's interesting because it's a conversation he and i have now as it pertains to my work because I often think of what we're doing making cartoons uh, as not even remotely approaching art mm. uh, capital A it's craft you know I think of it as as entertainment is a craft and I think of the the there's you know the the author or in, you know in the case of something like this obviously the many authors the, yeah. the big collaborative unit that makes the thing there's the work and then the, the last piece is the audience and the critical response right and you know, he kind of like was, I think, sort of raised on and 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 kind of uh, focused on a two-point system, where right. it's the artist and the work. Yes, and that how that evolved. I bleed, you buy. Yeah, or just no one buys, but I continue to uh, try and and kind of uh, hone my ability to say what I'm trying to say and make work that maybe someday someone will appreciate, maybe not. It's very interesting to me painting. Yeah, I, I, in the sense that in, I, I, we're definitely going to talk about animation, but that you know, for all my life, my mother was a, a, a painter too, uh -huh. and she was an artist, and and kind of I watched her sort of lose her way. Uh -huh. uh, she was a, a substitute art teacher, and uh, I used uh -huh. to remember she would go to classes with the little projects. But you know, she was a woman who, in you know, in her early forties, went back to get her master's in painting and just couldn't handle the the confidence. She didn't have the confidence. Mm -hmm to be there with all these young people and, yeah. and she sort of buckled and went on a uh, you know a search for meaning other places uh -huh. you know, real estate travel agents uh <laughs> where know, everyone goes yes flattering uh 
uh, sweat blank sweat to sweat outfits with paint and selling them at a boutique. <laughs> she, she became the the Jackson Pollock of hoodies, actually. <laughs> but uh, but the you know but for all my life, you know, I would go to museums and I would stand before canvases and I would read. You know, I tried to read the like uh, you know the Gombrich book and you know Art and Illusion and yeah. you know I studied this stuff and I still couldn't quite wrap around wrap my brain around the significance of it because even by the time we were kids, its relevance had drifted. Yeah. And then, okay, so enter animation. Then, when you were doodling, when you were, uh, you know, in high school, or when you were, were you a compulsive drawer? Or were you one of those guys that, like, you know, were your notebooks covered? I wasn't quite that guy, but I have always basically dabbled in the. Here's here's how the animation thing worked, and here's why I knew when I met Tom Snyder in Harvard Square in 1993 that I was getting. What bar were you working at? Uh, the Roxy downtown Boston. I know that place. It was on that block with the rest of them, right? Yeah, yeah. It was in the theater district. Oh man, was that? It wasn't on Lansdowne Street. No, no, it wasn't on Lansdowne. The Roxy was kind of like the theater district version of some of those Lansdowne places. It was a little um, dressy uppy when I worked there. When yeah. they, it's still there. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, they kind of made it into like a you know dress up date kind of place. They had a swing band. Oh, Sam C. <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. They had uh, a swing band. Uh, yeah, they had a swing band. Uh, I, it was a great place to work. I gotta say, it was five years there. Yeah, I started on the door, and then I worked my way up to the bar, and I'm glad I did it. What the hell was Tom Snyder doing there? He no, I didn't meet him at the bar. I met him. He was going to a funeral in Harvard. He's passing through Harvard Square in a seersucker suit, going to a funeral, and I was coming out of you know Charette's Art Supply or something like yeah. that. He was, it was just random. We, I, you know, I think I was bending over to pick something up in the street. And he's like, there's my wayward student. Yeah. I wonder what happened to him. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Yeah. All right. So, okay. So let's, let's get back to, uh, to where we were going, which was, uh, animation was yeah. on my radar because obviously the, the Simpsons had come out and was at the time just beginning to kind of, uh, be very, very exciting. Define. Uh, yeah. Define the genre of modern animation. Yeah, yeah. And I was definitely a fan. I, my memory is it was on Thursday nights originally, and this was back when we set our VCRs, you know. And I have this memory of just stacking up, you know, taping every Simpsons episode and watching with my girlfriend at the time. I also because I worked, so I had to tape them. Right. Uh, and I also uh, were you was, like, this is amazing. I was yeah, and it wasn't something I thought I could do, but I was really, really excited at, about at, it. at how much cultural ground they could cover comedically i mean what was it was it the art itself or was it just the freedom that you know when you work with characters in animation that you can say anything i think it was that i knew it had been primarily a kids medium and i had grown up loving you know certain disney movies and certain yeah. saturday morning cartoons like which ones well i, I have pretty like specific uh ones I, the the original one for me was this little scene disney movie called robin hood and then jungle book those were the, like the ones that were in this uh, considered like almost in the like the doldrums for yeah. disney but i thought they were the fantastic. bear and the, and the monkey were great right yeah the music's yeah. fantastic the voices were fantastic do you remember that that cover record that came out uh, oh, where everyone covered it. Yeah, when, the... when like Los Lobos and Tom Waits. Tom Waits did, I think, like the the. I can't remember which one, but it was a great record. Uh, you could, yes. I, I want to be like you and Bare Necessities. I think anybody could cover them and sound yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, right. Those are the two. Yeah, one was the monkey and one was the bear, right? Yeah. And and Louis Prima was the was the yeah orangutan. Yeah, King Louis. Yeah, yeah. So okay. So I so I was raised on those, and I think what happens when you see the Simpsons in the you know early nineties. The first thing you think is, oh my God, they're talking to me as a as a twenty something, 
using the medium that I grew up on. Like they, there was something that was so exciting that the like that they could make such sophisticated jokes and dialogue. Sure, they just dropped a needle into your mental groove. Yeah, and you're like, we're we can still do this. Yes. Now, did you have Warner Brother ones too that you liked? I mean, yes, they- loved, loved Bugs Bunny. Loved it all through my life, and then sort of you know as a pot smoker, you sort of rediscover. <laughs> Looney Tunes, I feel like, you know, and all of a sudden, you, yeah. you know, Daffy Duck is also really, really funny. This is, again, yeah. some, some another lecture for your kids. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's no reason. I, I, have you thought about that stuff? No. I mean, again. How old are they? Uh, four and two. All right. You have to. I have time. It's going to be new drugs by then. The pot's going to be so good, it's going to be, you know, they're going to pot breakfast cereal by then. Yeah, by true. the time they're old enough to yeah. take it in. That one's easy for me. I think I'll just tell them, like, enjoy it, but don't do it so much that you lose focus on your life <laughs> yeah yeah don't live the life of the mind yeah. that that will uh cause eventually yeah where you do not get out of it yeah hey pretty soon i'm gonna do that thing man i'm working on it. i'm still working on yes. it. yes so all right well that's amazing so then the, the simpsons you, you come from a you, but how about comic books you do the comic book thing a uh, little a little, not not that much. I wasn't passionate, but I I got it. I I definitely got how drawing and writing went together, and I was interested in doing that myself. It was part of the, again part of my panic that I was going through. I was like taking fiction classes at the Adult Ed Center in Cambridge, and I just was like, I gotta I gotta get back on some kind of track where I can do what I really want to do because I I knew that bartending wasn't going to be that fulfilling. But you weren't quite sure what you really wanted to do, right? So it was either going to be writing or art. You were just following in your parents' footsteps. Yep. And, I was combining them yeah. uh, and music and, and audio. Yeah. I had always had a four-track uh, you know, recorder in my garage. I had always tried to kind of record myself and my sister and occasionally other people, not really in bands when I was a kid, but really interested in, in making these recordings. Of stuff. Of songs, yeah. yeah. And I started to sense that those three things did have a place together which was animation and that was like a few weeks before i ran into tom snyder so everything just sort of converged yeah the gift was given yeah you read the you read the uh, the leaves properly yeah this was not this was not coincidence this was not mere synchronicity this this is your white light moment i knew it then and i knew it every day thereafter and have felt it every day thereafter since (laughs) that's a good story it's uh, it's a i feel lucky all the time. Let's talk about this difference in entering, uh, you know, the world that you did enter in, 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 at the beginning. This idea of art and and craft, because uh, you know it's hard to like. I always try. It's very difficult when people ask, you know, is comedy an art or is? Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, film, and and certainly what you're doing is is called an art. It's called an art. Uh, and I think that there's there are defining texts that will justify that. But you, you've decided for yourself that animation in, in what you do is a craft. Yeah, it's helpful to me to bring to invite in the audience. And I think that's, for me, the difference between art and craft. I don't... <laughs> art make, has to alienate you first? No, it's that art is... I think of art as being really internally created. You have to go deep on yourself and then kind of... Um, bring out something uh, of uh that feels like it has great meaning and value whereas i think craft is you put something out there you see people like it you adjust you put something more out there you see people like it you adjust you acknowledge the interaction between the audience and the work as much as you acknowledge your your own relationship to the work so i always try to make something that i like and that i'm proud of and if no one had seen it i'd still make it but i do like a lot 
that people see it. I like that it goes on TV. I wouldn't want to do this uh, if it wasn't hitting an audience and that if I wasn't hearing back from that audience. I like making people, you know, comedy, obviously, the, the critical component, I would think, or I don't know, maybe there's sort of comedy that transcends this, but I think the critical component is laughter. You're measuring your success by the laughs. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just learning that. <laughs> <laughs> After 25 years in the business, I'm, I'm starting to realize that maybe getting a few laughs might, <laughs> might, be, the, hurt. might be the way to go. I'm not sure what the fuck I was doing for 20 years. <laughs> I was angry, people were uncomfortable, right. but now the laugh component is really starting to resonate with me. It takes what it takes, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's a process. But I mean, I think that when I think about craft and, and, and putting it into the context of what you're explaining, I mean, craft is, is in my mind, practical art. Yes. That something that you can re repeat by a skill set yeah. that, that functions a, a certain way. Yeah. Functional Th art. Yeah. I think often of guys making furniture. Yeah. I think it's like a uh, not unlike what we do. It's, but that's a little bizarre because only in the sense that, you know, the Simpsons, you know, I, I would say that there's probably, if you were to ask a Simpsons freak, which you may be, like, you know, oddly, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a big cartoon guy. Yeah. But I, I uh, when I watch them, I'm happy. Yeah. I, but I'm finding that I'm not a, an anything guy. You yeah. know, I'm so wrapped up in my own bullshit that like I'm, I judge things and I'm like, oh, who's gonna watch cartoons? And he sent me in front of him, and I'm like, eh, that's so cute, yeah. and I feel happy. I'm crying now. Yeah. Uh, but I would say that people would argue that there there were chunks of Simpsons that were relevant enough to be considered uh, to transcend the craft of animation and be art. Yeah, why not? I mean, I want to take. I, <laughs> but you're saying that wasn't the intention necessarily. Yeah, yeah. I, or at least I find it helpful to me not to aspire to make art, but rather to aspire to make a well-made piece of work that I call craft. It just helps me stay. I, I, I think the humility of the act is important in a way too. You sort of say, sure. You know, you don't want to sit there going, "I'm a genius." Yeah. There go. This is going to be so. This is going to stand the test of time, and no one's going to understand it for years. Yeah, anything uh, like that, and and uh, you know, and that's that's how you make stuff when you're a little bit younger, I think. And it's and and some people are good enough, uh, my dad included, to keep going and make that stuff. It's real. They're really making. They're really having an important dialogue with their own development, basically. Well, I think some people. It sounds like your dad has come to terms with uh, that. You know, he he finds you know joy and meaning in doing it. Yes. And that uh, the 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 idea of fame, which uh, I, I think, um, if it's not combined, you know, the drive for fame, if it's not combined with ambition, is 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 a lot of times childish. You know, to oh to, yeah, fame is probably that's probably a, a toxic goal that would poison everything. Could you I would could think. you drive around the streets here and just yell that? You know, maybe get a <laughs> megaphone and drive up and down every block in in Hollywood, yeah. you know, through the valley going, fame is toxic. Yeah. There's no reason to want it. Not only is it gonna cause you pain, but everybody will pay for it. Yeah, yeah. I I mean it's true. I think I, I like you know, we were at the Creative Arts Emmys last night and I like the behind the scenes people because of course they're not striving for fame. The, every hairdresser and, and every light director is doing it because they like the work they're never going to get sure. famous they're never going to get famous they get to go they may on, like famous people they might they might like to go to bed with famous people sure. they might like, they like to, to be around them. yeah yeah mm -hmm. and and who doesn't but uh, i think uh you know there's a great um an important difference between wanting a bigger audience which i think is perfectly reasonable right, reasonable yeah, sure uh, yeah, yeah a great goal yeah uh versus wanting fame that's well. That's an interesting. That's that's interesting because I, I don't know that I ever thought about it like that. Because I, you know, I'm at a point 
with my own life where you know I'm starting to get an audience and I just like that I have enough to uh, to earn a living. Yeah. I mean that's really what it's come down to. I you know, I'm not I'm not even sure that I could handle fame as as people yeah. you know as people fantasize about it. Right. You know like I want to be the most famous. I'm like I, that's a, too much pressure. Yeah. Whatever the next <laughs> sentence is, I want to be the most famous anything. Yeah. It's that I'm it's causing me uh, anxiety. Yeah. Who the hell wants Who that? Wants that? To... Right. I don't know why. People I'd like want to be that. famous to the people that like me. Yes, that's good. Yep. I'd like to find more of them. How about yeah? Just represent something good to the people that watch the show that or, enjoy or that enjoy do. the work. Yeah. You just you don't have to be anything to them other than uh, the embodiment of the thing that they like. I like that guy because I love that show. Right. Well, that's a, I, I think that's good. I think yeah. that's helpful. So let's go back to uh, the first. Uh, the uh, let's move through the the work. So, Doctor Katz, who invented uh, squiggle vision? Were you at the cutting edge of that? No, Tom Snyder really had the the vision. Uh, Tom Snyder and Jonathan Katz, uh, between them, had uh, a lot of vision about what they wanted to do. The two most important things they they understood instinctively, even though neither of them came from animation, right? Was, um loose improvised dialogue that was going to be edited down yeah and minimalistic animation and those two things were very 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 um important at the time right since then i've abandoned to some extent minimalistic animation but the core of that idea of like getting a lot of stuff on tape having it be very very loose very performance based often uh you know insisting on actors being together in the same room and interacting then cutting that together that's the the core thing and they were into that from the get-go jonathan wanted to get with comics get their acts on tape but also get a little just a little bit of flavor you know a little him and dom Herrera, you know yeah ad-libbing for a few minutes and then somebody could go and cut in it so that and that was what my job was right when he first hired sure. me he let me cut the audio he would do the uh, uh-huh yeah <laughs> Right, like you'd have a lot of those stocked <laughs> yeah. up. Like, oh, yeah. oh interesting. Yes, yeah. I like, <laughs> you'd yep. drop those babies in. Yeah, and then he'd say, oh, you know what the music means. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, but the, what's also interesting is what you said about comics, about comic books particularly, is that having gone through a three or four year period with, uh, with reading them and yeah. being into them and reading graphic novels, is that it's, it takes very little imagery. Yeah. To propel the story yeah. with the text. I, I've noticed that when I'm looking, when I'm reading comics specifically, that, you know, you've got your dialogue, but your brain, you know, doesn't spend a lot of time. You know, I'm sure there are plenty of nerds out there who are like, oh, you're missing the best part if you didn't see the way he handled that pocket, you know, but right. but it takes very little imagery to propel and create a universe. Yeah. And and that happens when you're reading a comic. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm not saying the art is, is bad or anything, but I was always fascinated with how little it really takes to get you into a world. There, there's a great book called Understanding Comics, and the my memory of one of the big takeaways from the book was he said, almost all of the important stuff actually happens between the panels in your mind. Right. There's yeah. this incredible, magical thing that happens between one image and another. It's all in that little tiny margin between the two drawings. Right, because you can go back, and it's not like you're missing anything. Yeah. It's, 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 it's bizarre. Yeah. It's a real magic. Yeah. So you, you made a conscious decision to strip it down as much as possible. Because, I mean, The Simpsons is not essentially stripped down, is it? I mean, it's basic, but it, you wouldn't call it... No, it's, it's, it's real full, yeah. full animation. They, they walk and they move wonderfully. Well, that's what and you they, mean, right. Yeah, yeah and, they, and you believe that they exist in space. The backgrounds are rendered in such right, a way that right. there's a, you know, Homer's going to run back 
right. in perspective and then run forward again right. and you really buy it the, in the great tradition of whatever, Disney and all right. those other great. But, but when you guys did it, you were like, that. that's not necessary. Nobody moved. Nobody moved. I kid you not, you can watch all seven seasons of Dr. Katz. You will rarely see anyone get up out of their chair and move at all. We moved arms for expression. Yeah. We moved mouths, obviously, and eyes. It's the most important thing on television. Right. Everything else seemed irrelevant to us. If Ben uh, needed to get to the sink because that was some sort of part point in dialogue, we would just cut to Dr. Katz and then Ben would be at the sink. Right. But this was not a budgetary thing. This was not, this was a, an aesthetic thing. It was both. It was right. both. We knew we were making animation for incredibly cheap compared to The Simpsons or something like that. We knew we were, it was partly a price point thing. Uh, again, a part of the vision Tom Snyder had was we can, if people want animation, we can give them animation. Yeah. It doesn't have to cost that much. Right. And I guess that you were sort of groundbreakers because, you know, now everybody can do animation. That, like, once that once people realized that you can do this, it's like, well, I, I can do that. Yeah. I mean, flash animation is sort of like that, right? There was the, the, the desktop computer revolution or whatever you want to call it that came along during that time and obviously accelerated across, you know, into the 2000s uh, made it possible for everybody to do this. Now... Like, okay, so Dr. Katz was driven by Jonathan and by Comedian's Axe. Yes. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. I seem to be doing it in real life now. Yeah. Um, but Home Movies was, you know, an arc. It was scripted. There were characters that built it. It's a sitcom, it. yeah. It's a sitcom. Yeah. So making the jump to that, I mean, the, the animation was a little more complex. Yep. And uh, you were working with Brendan Spall. Yeah. But you seem to have, I, I don't know who had it or why, but I mean, it's 1999, right? Yes. And, you know, you casted some of the biggest comics ever who none of them were that. So somebody had a pretty good fucking eye. I mean, well, you, John, John Benjamin is obviously a, a, a genius of, yes. uh, of, of, uh, of comedy and voice. But, I mean, in those original, in home movies, you had Kirkman, you had C.K., Hedberg, Kindler, Jesus, look, Bamford, Merman, Todd Berry. And that was fucking, well, I mean, you also had some established people like Paula Poundstone and stuff. But that was... 99, none of these people were necessarily relevant then. Uh, they were in... Sam Cedar, I apologize. Sam Cedar, and you've created it with Brendan Small. A lot of them were the Boston crew though, yes. at that time. There's the Boston crew, and obviously there's, you know, Louis C.K., uh, you know, was all, was a comics comic in at that time, too. Well, he'd done a lot of work, and yeah. he'd worked in television. He was respected. Yeah. yeah. So so they we were aware that they were... And Hedberg was, was a, a, you know, a fantastic comic who was you know uh, doing he was just starting to get big then right yeah. that was probably a year before or was it right after uh, no i seem to remember we did him on dr cats first and i remember then he did that joke about uh doing um letterman he said two two million people watch that watch that show i cannot find one of them <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah you seem to have a great eye for uh for comic talent that i i like to think that's true i don't um the, Dr. Katz was formative in that we listened to a lot of comics. I got uh, in my ear a tremendous number of, of, of people's uh, acts. And I think, yeah, we started to gravitate towards a certain type. Uh, and a lot of those guys uh, actually were, you know, kind of all in the same circle that, you know, that you're in as well. It's sort of the... I, 
I don't want to, I think alternative comedy is mostly meaningless, but it was just sort of like guys who weren't necessarily doing um, jokey jokes and guys who were using a little bit more of their own um, sort of personality and voice, which of course is what I was listening for. And also guys who, who understood that animation was a real thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, you know, you were ahead of the curve too on just, you know, the, you know, in, in movies as well. I mean, I, I think that if you're looking at, at Dr. Kazer 1999, it was the business of big screen animation for adults and children mm. was not really there yet, was yeah. it? No, that's true. You're right. Yeah. That, you know, like now, like every animation movie is like, you know, carefully designed so adults can enjoy it and children can enjoy it. That's right. And they cast great people now. You're, you're more right. likely to find Will Ferrell being the that's lead. Right. Yeah, that's right. And there's people, like, I understand what you're saying. Like some of these people that you're, you're talking, that you use, you know, have a quality of voice that, that is rich enough to, to fuel uh, an animated character. And then you also have people that, that are capable of other voices. That's right. Well, here's the secret. I think the, the secret sauce for a lot of, of what we've done in casting stand-ups, which, you know, which we continue to do, is I think stand-ups use their voice. They, they only have a few things they can bring, right? You, you, you yeah. bring your jokes. You bring something of a physical um, sure. performance. But it's really your voice. And timing. Right, yeah. right. That's and, included in the voice. Right. Right. And I think what other actors you know rely on their face you know live people who who are who don't do stand up who are just maybe comic actors who you know get cast and stuff they often can use their face and their body in a way that i think a stand up ultimately can't they really have to deliver it right into the microphone and they have to know what it is about their voice that's funny and compelling and so they're they're honing a voice in a way that a quote unquote voiceover actor really isn't yeah so we don't work with a lot of voiceover guys well right because the 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 impulse is always you know to get the laugh right so you're talking about people that have spent 10 years or more on stage using their voice to extract laughter yes that's their job yes right yeah i understand and it's so it's it's a really really um high percentage of those guys work really well uh in the context that we use them Uh, it's it's just uh, almost always uh, a given that those guys will come in and be funny in the studio for us. And whereas some of these other actors, even actors that we love on uh, you know any given TV show or whatever, might not because they don't quite realize when they when you take away their face and their body, they're left with just the voice in the microphone. Right, right. And there's no uh, no um, sort of built-in inner life right. that has learned to live on stage as themselves. That's right. Oh, so that's like so you just fill up a character with that, like, and I, and that seems to be smart. In a perfect world, you write to it. Sure, you know who you're going to cast before you finish writing the script, so you write right to that. Well, voice. you did how many seasons of home movies? Four. So I mean, by by the end of season one, you were writing for people, right? Yeah, I mean, home movies was uh, uh was the uh kind of like in a weird way the um last thing. We did when we didn't know what we were doing, if that makes sense. Well, how did it come? Because Brendan Small, uh, of course, the uh, creator and uh, voice behind many, but uh, the creator and, and uh, of Metalocalypse, and he's been on my show, and I've done some voices. I, I did a voice on Metalocalypse the last season, uh, but he's a Boston guy. Yeah. So how did that uh, partnership come? We were working on um, Dr. Katz, but we were getting uh, a lot of interest from networks to do that kind of thing, in so much so that we had actually multiple opportunities at the same time so my you and bo- snyder yeah so and i was coming up on uh you know probably 29 28 29 years old 
And he said, you create something. I'm going to do this thing for FX. You do this thing for UPN. And I had, so I had a blank slate. So we started talking about what it might be. And I, you know, was sort of uh, workshopping it with Snyder. And uh, we'd been working with Paula Poundstone on this Saturday morning show. So I knew I wanted to make something around her as a single mom. She had these adopted kids in real life. And I just thought that would be a good place to start a family show with a single mom. And then I went out shopping for a, a son. For the for the the comedic right part, this the, is going to be overly intelligent child. Yeah, the precocious <laughs> yeah. eight year old. Yeah. Um, and and the, there was this. Um, I'm sure you uh, know it. This in, on the third floor of the Hong Kong restaurant in Harvard Square. Yeah, yeah. The, the comedy studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that was the closest. That uh, opened after I left, but you know, Rick Jenkins is. Rick, play, yeah, yeah, exactly. So so he was Rick Jenkins was putting on these these lineups. Uh, many nights a week and I could walk there from my apartment so I would go uh, it was Louis C.K. was headlining and Brendan was warming up you know was was uh, one of the first doing acts. his characters yeah he did a character he mustache did mustache guy no it no. was um, a guy who had never done stand up before right, right. and uh, How are you? doing a bit about ham was he a Boston guy though? Was it the heavy Boston accent? Oh no, he's not a Boston guy. He's from California, but he was no. But was the to... character Boston? Oh no, 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 no. wasn't that guy? No, it was more. Like, it sounded like a child, mm. which is why I was drawn oh, okay. to it. Um, so I got in touch with him the next day uh, or thereabouts and invited him to uh, kind of come into this thing while it was still so um, unformed. Just as a voice, he was going to be the voice right. of the son right. of Paula Pound. So, I, so we had two two pieces yeah. and we just started putting in pieces around that um, and so much so that it felt um, fair and, and correct to share creator credit with him uh, he's a 23 year old kid um, just out br- of Berkeley yeah. yeah he brought all that music to it um, and he brought a lot of his um, just a, a very mature sense of the kind of you were his Tom Snyder yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and importantly um, we brought Benjamin in and I often think about how that all went down because we were worried at the time we would have made a starring vehicle for John Benjamin again. You know, Dr. Katz had him as the son. Tom Snyder and I and Jonathan Katz all knew that we were really, really lucky to have him, that he lifted up that Dr. Katz was a premise that was driven by the comics material, but that if the father son relationship didn't work, yeah. if Laura Silverman and John Benjamin and Jonathan Katz didn't have this incredible kind of, uh, ability to make those little scenes around the therapy sessions work, then we wouldn't have gotten that many seasons. It would have played out much faster. Sure, sure. You could have gotten one or two. Right. Or two. But this this made it much more. Yeah, pe- an evolving uh, emotional relationship. Yeah, we were writing simple stories yeah. that were sort of takes place over about six scenes. Anyway, John Benjamin, we were worried we were going to lose him. He was so hot at the time. Oh yeah. We thought we're never going to be able to right. build around him. He's in New York now. He's 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 gonna he's gonna take off, and we're not going to be able to get him. But. Uh, at a critical point in the home movies um, sort of uh, gestation development period, we, w- we realized we really wanted him. And so we said, will you play the soccer coach? You're going to come in and kind of be this like bad father figure to this kid. And, and in the pilot, he goes on a date with the mom and really just sets that up. And uh, then we also had him play Jason, this kind of uh, third wheel in this three kid um, little sort of a film yeah. makers club. He And I, I'm just... Uh, looking back, you know, I've I've never done a show without John Benjamin. Yeah, and and I often say I never wanna. Yeah, I don't want to find out what that's like. Yeah, because I think it's gonna be really really hard. Yeah, he's what what is it like? He's such a funny guy, but what is it about that? What what is that quality? I mean, I, I don't want you to quantify it necessarily, but what, what I think it's 
not it seems like it should be easy everyone should be able to do what he does but only he can it's i mean obviously he has a great voice and it's fun to listen to him talk yeah um but i think he can be likable even when he's being grumpy yeah right that's rare the and crank yeah the yeah. crank and it's believable in both cases because he's really like that yes. I mean, it, like i talk about this a lot that 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 comedic character a crank whether it's a stand-up or, or what you're talking about it it has to be ingrained yeah i mean if you're just angry or you come into it or you don't realize the you know the the, the fine line between being you know a, a whining you know angry person and just being cranky yeah it's it's just a rare comedic type. Yeah, there's there's only been a few. You could probably name them. Yeah, yeah. It's and and it's a and once you hook into it, it's addictive. You want more and more of it because you want that somebody who can bring that kind of like cynicism and edge at, without it being ultimately threatening. He was doing that to me when I was a twenty something, and he was a little bit older, and I started to lose my hair, or maybe uh, he caught me uh, drinking on a Wednesday night in the office or whatever. Yeah. He always um, had a way of teasing me that made me feel um, happy to be teased. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Him and Cedar together, yes. like, that's dangerous, because they can be, you know, you don't want to be caught in that loop of uh, horrible pranks, because, <laughs> but that thing was very, hugely popular. But four seasons, did you want to do more? What happened? No, four was perfect. That was it. Yeah, it, it wasn't hugely popular. Uh, but in a cult way, it is hugely popular. It I has mean, survived you know. uh, very well. It has, it's, it's the Adult Swim, you know, UPN originally wanted it and they only aired five episodes and, and uh, I say canceled it with a vengeance. I mean, they extra canceled it. It was a disaster for them. It was, it was. But they turned out to be a disaster in general. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. But we were the worst rated show on their network. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, I fault us. I, I, we made a, a show that we were very proud of and very happy with, and we also were lucky because UPN at the time was offering, they said, you'll own your show. Yeah. You'll own it. Yeah. Just come, part of the deal. Come yeah. Make, yeah. yeah. So that made it Worse. very easy when, when, they, when they canceled it and Adult Swim was starting their thing, it, the, the deal was easy. It was done. They Did just, they try to fight it? Who? Did they uh, UPN? No, they, they couldn't do anything. They didn't, couldn't do anything and weren't interested. They, you know, that's a gift. It was great. Yeah, they could. They could have like in most deals. Just that would have been it. We own it. You can't have it. We're done with it. Yep. Fuck you. Yep. Oh, that's good for you. Yep. We we were lucky again. You're a lucky guy. Yep. UPN, uh, you know, goes away. There's only a few months. I feel like six months, and then we get the call. That's at the beginning of Adult Swim, too, right? Very beginning. Was it just you and Tim and Eric? What was on there? <laughs> yeah, it was before Tim and Eric. Or maybe Tom goes to the mayor, yeah. It was, yeah, it was very few things. We were the lead-off hitter, and then there was uh, a few licensed things. I think we were a lead-off at 10 o'clock or whatever, and then there was, you know, things that they had picked up and repurposed. But you were doing full, I mean, were they, like, I'm sorry, I don't know this, but weren't they, they weren't 22-minute uh, episodes? I mean, when you Adult Swim. They were 22. Okay. Yeah. So Adult Swim doesn't generally do that. They were moving more towards 11's, 11 minute yeah. uh, quarter hour things while, while we were doing home movies, but they were agnostic about that. They liked a good half hour if they could get sure, one. Right. 11 minute chunks turned out to be smart and, and you know, fit them. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, they didn't mind having a half hour show. And that, and that must be the way that uh, that Brendan Small developed his relationship with them. Yeah. And then we, that's how we get Metalocalypse. Yeah. And, and, and that's how they do it with everybody. They love working with the same people again. They'll give you another shot, basically. Uh, they're very, very, it's a, it's a tight little family in a way. Yeah. Adult Swim, they're great people. When I hear about this kind of stuff, it's like, if I had planned on doing anything other than just talking, it could have been further along. <laughs> Maybe if I, you know, sure. gotten along with other people, you know, said yeah. yes to things that seemed fun. Yeah. All right. 
I'm learning a big lesson here about me, which yeah. uh, that's that 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 makes a good episode. Yeah, that's why I do this. I, I guess so. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought it was beyond it. I thought we'd hit another gear where I was doing okay finally. <laughs> Guess not. But uh, all right, so Bob's Burgers, this is what, several years later? What have you been doing? I mean, like since uh, home movies? Oh, did another show for Adult Swim. In which, the was, which one? Lucy, Daughter of the Devil. Okay. Same thing. Did it with Benjamin uh, and uh, Eugene Merman and Sam Cedar and uh, the like. Um, and Todd Barry and all those other, you know. Would you, why don't you just make a, could you do a a, a character, I'm just speaking as a friend of Sam's yeah. here, uh, an aggravated, <laughs> a downtrodden political pundit who's just looking for his place in the world? Could you integrate that into? He's pitched that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. In the, how many versions? <laughs> no, we've got him as the health inspector. Have you seen the episodes with Sam in it on Bob's Burgers? Sam is the the nemesis health inspector. I just saw that. The true that. enemy of all I burger the, joints. I saw the first one. He's Victor? That's uh, not Sam. There were two health inspectors, one that used to go out with uh, yeah, the that's, mother. Yeah, that's Sam. I didn't recognize. Hugo. I did not. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I got to go listen again. Yeah, yeah. He does a fantastic job as that, and I love It's so good that I did that. Like, that usually when I hear Sam's voice, I, I have flashbacks. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't happen. He must have really... You didn't get an Air America flashback? No, no. It really, yeah. He really disguised it well. Yeah, he's great. He's fantastic as Hugo, and he's fantastic as other characters, uh, though his, you know, his voice is so recognizable now as the health inspector. We just write to him and bring him back. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. All those people are so fucking funny. I went to uh, the, uh, I was up in Montreal and I went to the live reading that, oh, you, good. Could, that you couldn't go to. I couldn't go to it. Yeah, I didn't get across the, I didn't get out of the airport. What the fuck happened? I did, had an expired passport. Oh my God. I didn't know. I didn't, I, I barely even brought it. I thought you could go with your license. I feel like I went to Montreal with my license, like, you know, in no. 99 or something. I don't know. I got there and I'm scanning it and I don't understand why it's not going through. And I asked a lady and she says, you know, it's expired. And I said, oh, well, you know, what do I do? And she says, nothing you can do. <laughs> and I kept waiting for like her to finally break yeah, yeah, and be yeah. like, well, there's one thing you can do. It's very expensive, but here's, but there was nothing. She was like, it's, it's horrendous. Yeah. I started like, I called the Fox publicity people. I, I, I got I to be there yeah. tomorrow Aren't morning. You powerful like, enough. Yeah. To... <laughs> well, what do we do? Like, is, is there a secret yeah, thing yeah. I can do? You guys are powerful. You're Fox. Yeah. Call the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. No, I, dude, I was flagged for years over nothing. Every oh, I time heard about that. Every fucking time I went in, I had to go through immigration because years ago, some uh, comedy uh, uh, festival. Yeah, I drove in. Yeah, from uh, from Seattle. Yeah. in Vancouver, and they didn't prep the drive-through customs, like you know the yeah. the airplane customs they're set with. But they all seem to just do what they want. Yeah, but I didn't have the right paperwork. I couldn't explain certain things. They're uh. like, well, you can go back to America and, and resolve this. Oh, man. And because of that, because I was denied entry, I was marked. And every time I went in, I would go to immigration and have to go through this rigmarole of some fucking customs agent looking at my paperwork going, so this place you're performing at, is that, uh, they serve liquor there? And I'm like, I don't know your weird blue laws. <laughs> yeah, what is and it? I, yeah, you know, and some guy, finally told, yeah, some guy yeah. finally told me, it's like, yeah, you're never, yeah, every time you come, depending on the customs agent, they're just going to either keep you here. He literally said, some of us are bitter. And we're tired of this shit, and we don't like the way the structure of things is running now. So we're going to make your life miserable, depending on our day. And I'm like, I appreciate your honesty. Yeah, Can I know. go now? No, sit down. Yeah, no, Jesus. <laughs> no. He was all right. Yeah. I'm glad I got him. It must have been a week before his retirement. 
But um, but when you write these things, like I got a script up right now that I'm writing for my show. I mean, what's the process? I mean, uh, you know, obviously many people are involved. I yeah. mean, on, on home movies, yeah, Broadus. What's Broadus up to, Bill Broadus? You know, I don't know. He's in Boston. I know he, he's still there, and I I don't know what he's working on. I started doing comedy with him when I was in college he's at really, open mics in the '80s. He's really funny, Bill Broadus. Yeah, he was our one of the first two guests on Doctor Katz, and then later we pulled, pulled him in as a writer. But he wrote a lot of the uh, home movies. Yeah, he worked with Brendan on almost every script. Yeah. Yeah. He he was he's just a great funny guy, a great Boston comic. But There's do you, a lot it, of them. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Do you, do you do that though? Do you have a staff and then you break story and then you sit there and you know assign scripts and then you co- you put it back up on the lift and look at it as a group again and is that how it works? It's a big staff. We have a so so you know the basic turning point here is is going from cable and low budget to Fox. It's definitely a big change you have bob's burgers is you know on after the simpsons with all that implies you we're a guild show we have a big staff we have a big operation there are people who have been doing this for a long time working on king of the hill uh, primarily but also you know we get simpsons people we have professional animation primetime animation um people and i've never worked with those people how are you adjusting great it's great here's here's why they there's no culture clash. The the people who do this professionally are intensely interested in efficiencies and um and sort of new creative ideas because of course they're really good at their jobs. That's how they got to be doing this for years in prime time. They've been doing it forever. Yeah, and so they're they're the they're very very good. And the thing about people who are very very good at their jobs is they they're not interested in stasis and inertia. Those people tend to get weeded out. I think you yeah. hear about the old timers who just do it their yeah. way or whatever. But actually, you don't. Where meet are them. my pens? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't meet that many of them. Mm-hmm. They muster out. Yeah. Uh, so what you're left with is people who've been doing it a long time, but who are intensely interested in in new ways of working. So. I'm the guy, you know, on some level I represent cable and the garage band mentality, just a very few people doing a lot of jobs and making these things for nothing. Mm -hmm. And so I bring that theoretically, uh, and they bring the, we made King of the Hell for 12 years. We've worked on these shows. We know how to make a network show. And those two things actually integrate really well. Uh, So it's been great. And I actually feel like this happened, again, not just, you know, I'm just a lucky guy. I, this happened at the right time in my life. I think if I'd been a little younger, I wouldn't necessarily have known how to do this at this point, like do a show for Fox, do a show that has to you know, play in front of that many more million people. Manage a, a staff. Manage a staff and, 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 and still bring, right. ho- hopefully, uh, something to the table. Uh, but now I feel like I do know how to do that. Uh, you, and so to answer your question, you have a big group of people uh, making the show, including a big writing staff, but you have the same job, which is just listening really, really carefully to, I mean, I have the same job, to the tone of the show and to the tone and tenor of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, in the end, all I do for picture really is make the face fit the performance. That's the most important thing. Everything else is is fun. You can you know talk to the directors about camera angles. You can work with the board artists about these action sequences. Those that's really really fun. But what I think I still have to do most importantly before you know the lights are out at the end of any given day is make sure that we got the the what the visuals are supporting the performance. And I know those performers, and I can sort of hopefully like advocate for uh, a pupil direction. Do you do the sketches? I mean. No. Uh, 
No. So you didn't ink any of the characters? No, no, no. Did you ink them from, uh, like, Eugene seems to look a little like Eugene. Yeah, a little bit. We, you know, you those actors were all cast, and then the show was created. Who, who decided on the bunny ears? We did. Uh, yeah. Is it a group decision? Yeah. Me and this other woman I was working with, uh, Nora Smith, when we were developing it, and the character designer, Jay Howell, the, the bunny ears was a natural. We had been watching this, like, uh, anime, and there was a kid with a, the, um, you know, a, a bear hat. They never that. took off. Uh, yeah. 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 Yeah, because I, I think the characters are great. And also, you know, casting, you know, certain men as women is very, uh, was very good. That was easy too. But we've been doing that a long time on home movies. You remember, you know, Sam Brown? Yeah. And we had him come in as a babysitter doing his voice, but he's a teenage girl. Like we've always been sort of interested in that, uh, going back to the Boston days, uh, in this case, and Owen oh, uh, Eugene Merman played a nun on Lucy Daughter to the Devil uh-huh. doing this kind of Miss Piggy voice that I loved. I just loved it. It was a little bit of a hate it or love it kind of character. Yeah. It turns out after the fact, but I just couldn't get enough of it. But John Roberts says the mother is great. Yeah. So that was easy. He's yeah. doing that character yeah, already yeah, on yeah. YouTube, right? All yeah. we got to do is is reach out uh, and say, will you loan us that but, voice? But Mintz was kind of a genius bit of business. Thank you. Know? you. So Mintz, <laughs> what they, we develop it with, um, with Dan as a boy. Eugene as a boy and Kristen as a girl. It's going to be three kids. It's Dan Mintz, Kristen Shaw, Eugene Merman. Yeah. Are they're, the children on Bob's children Burgers. children on Bob's yeah. and, and at, in development, uh, Fox said, we're a little worried that the boys aren't differentiated enough. You kind of, you know, you want your characters to really, really pop uh what 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 is this this older boy what you know what can you say about him and so we went away we came back and we said it's a girl and it sounds exactly like the character you've already heard yeah and they loved it they were excited we we did a little test we took dan mince's stand-up yeah and animated tina as she looks now yeah just doing dan mince's stand-up and they bought it right there oh that's great yeah yeah he's so funny he's fantastic is he writing too no, but yeah. we would love to have him. We haven't changed our staff at all, basically. We haven't hired new people. Who's the, who are the writers? We have um, a uh, two people that I've been working with for years, Nora Smith, who worked with me on Lucy and came from San Francisco down to here, Holly Schlesinger, who you know well. Yeah. Uh, I've been working with her since the Dr. Katz days, yeah. and I wrote Lucy with her, and, uh, and she worked on home movies. So she, those two uh, came with me, and then we hired um, John Schrader, uh, who you might know, he's a UCB uh, stalwart and who uh, worked on Sarah Silverman's show. Uh, Dan Feibel, Rich Rinaldi, who worked on Sarah Silverman's show. Kit Boss. Kit uh, Boss, he, he, didn't he work on the original Louis show on uh, HBO? I don't know. He's been around a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, these are King of the Hill guys. So, so Jim Dotrieve, who is my co-show. My guys are King of the Hill guys. Really? Uh, two of the guys who are working on um, on my, the, my showrunners are King of the Hill guys. Who are they? Uh, Michael Jammon and Silver Glarum. Oh wow! Yeah. The the King of the Hill turns out to be kind of like this. Uh, yeah, it's good. They, they, the staff has spread far and wide in yeah. entertainment. I'm looking forward to being a, a live uh, action cartoon character. Yeah, you feel that way? <laughs> no. You know, I always say live action is just low budget animation. <laughs> Sitcom certainly. You, you know, you got to, you, they hired an actor yeah. to, to play the drawings. That's right. Yeah. Well, well, that I mean, sadly, and and also I guess it it, it is the success of the medium, but I mean. You know, sitcoms are all, you know, the successful ones are all due to the definition of the characters yeah. as being consistent yeah. and, and how they integra- interact with each other. Character-driven comedy, I I don't, like, I can't express it strongly enough when we're working. Like, if this isn't true to the character, we shouldn't do it. There can be really funny jokes that you have to leave behind yeah. because the character wouldn't say them. Right. 
and it's i think in some ways it's it's like um upsetting for some of the writers to to leave behind good jokes of course it should be they're they're sort of they're like it's in their dna the best joke should win but i think it's really important to have somebody else say no the character has to be yeah if it can't come out of his mouth yeah you know, sometimes they, they really are not designed to come out of anyone's mouth. Right, that's true. Just a writer in a writer's room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but it, it's, it's good that you're on top of that. And that's a... That's my job. Yeah. It's it's the only job I have is just to be this kind of um, uh, sort of voice of, of kind of conservatism. But but it's, it's interesting that when you speak of animation, certainly, I mean, I imagine The Simpsons are like that too, but, uh, you know, you have these characters saying things that are so intelligent, so funny, and everything is so quick that that the, to know there is a filter because you could really have them do whatever you want yeah. but you you from experience i imagine you know that it's detrimental to the show have you put on things where you're like yeah that was no never yeah we won't do it it's it's painful you feel it uh, yeah i can't i feel so protective of the characters and i and the actors do too yeah uh john benjamin will let you know yeah he will not read a line if it doesn't sound like something he would say we we this is doesn't come up on bob's burgers i think the filter is in place before he get yeah. the scripts get to him but we saw it plenty of times on home movies or he does a very clever thing yeah which i believe sam cedar uh defined this way he said which is you buy it back in the voice of the character so he used to as coach mcgurk he would say you know oh my god i don't want to do that and then he would say why did i why did i say that yeah <laughs> And we'd use it, so it would make it, you make the not quite line work for the moment, uh, like some sort of brain fart. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just said a uh, writer's line that uh, that wasn't written well for me. Yeah, <laughs> why, why did I say that? <laughs> well, congratulations on uh, on 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 your initial luck and and writing it out so well. Thank you. Some people get lucky, and then it's just you know they don't uh, harness it. It, it, the only downside is it creates this ter- terrible sense of anxiety where you feel like you you got a little bit more than than most people, and so you start feeling like it's going to be taken away, or maybe this is because my mother died, or I don't know. But you, it makes you a little nervous. I think that's just the uh, the curse of of succeeding in a creative field. Yeah, maybe that's it. That you know, there, there's some part of you that can't think that can't help but think like this isn't real work. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like this is like, the other shoe's got to drop. <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> some, <laughs> Someone is this some sort of weird extended prank? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think it doesn't seem to be happening because, you know, like you said, your craft is in place, and I think despite the the fact you're you're probably making art. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Pleasure. That's it. That's our show. I hope you enjoy that. What a pleasant man, Lauren Bouchard. What an interesting conversation. What a sweet guy. Worked out for him. Destiny stepped in. And he knew it. What do we got? Go to WTFPod.com. Get everything you need that's WTF Pod related. Get some merch, new posters, get a mug, get a t-shirt, get a tote bag, get a button, kick in a few shekels. Get the app. See who's been on the show. Comment. Listen to some stuff. Look around. Have a good time. Get some JustCoffee.coop. Get the WTF blend. I get a little on the back end. You know what I'm saying? Ferndale, Michigan, tomorrow night, September 29th, two shows. Sometime in another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there's two two shows, two different times, tomorrow, not tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow night. Oh, I hope Delta gets me there on time. Boomy, Boomy, come here, buddy. The whole house smells like fucking skunks. It's unbelievable. I don't even know where they live. Do you guys know where they live? 
They can't just live under the house. Don't they live in the ground? Is there a hole somewhere? They just crawl out of places. Full-grown fucking skunks. The entire, the entire house smells like skunk. Boomy. Well, again, thank you for the birthday wishes. I don't, I'm tired now.